Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melakaolam Asher Bakar Bin Vim Tovim Veratza Vedivrehim Ha Ne Emarim Beemet Barukata Adonai Haboker Batora Uv Moshe Avdo Uv Yisrael Amo Uvin Vie Ha Emet Ve Vazerek Biskut Mashiach Yeshua Amen Amen Yistabak Shimka Hashem. Shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Haftarah Parsha. Get you some with Shomerman and Chasis Baz. Shalom. All right. We are in um, Parsha. Get you some this week because that's what Bo means if you really translate it. Um, You think with Rosh Hodesh Shavat just kicking us in the face with some awesomeness. And uh, then we got this tour portion that's absolutely insane. So now, let's dive into the Haftarah portion. And Hasis, take it away. So we start off with our historical background, a little bit about Yamahu. So we're the period of Jeremiah's ministry, his entire uh, prophet career, if you will, actually extends from like the 13th year of Yoshia's reign around this is around like 625 before common era and this goes up until after the destruction of the temple and overthrow of the Judean state in about 586 BCE hmm. that's a little time frame okay and I figured that we'd maybe start off a little historical story time if you will Historical story time. Let's yeah. do it. Switch it up. All right. So the kind of background in there, there's a lot of this <clears throat> pro-Egyptian uh, political party, this this uh, tension with Assyria and Babylon. And so let's go ahead and hit it. All right. Oh, you're not gonna not gonna say story time? No. <laughs> Oh, you want to do the same chime for the historical story time? Oh, yeah. I guess so, unless you think of a different chime. <laughs> taking it back, taking it back to the to the, to the story time. Come on. That's the historical That's version. I like it. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> Assyria had now lost her preeminence, and Babylon was embarking upon her career of conquest. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar became the king of a new empire. He was immediately hailed as the servant of the Lord by Yamahu, who had seen him as God's chosen instrument for punishing Judea, declaring that all nations must submit to him. Joachim, appreciating that Egypt could no longer be relied upon for assistance, swore allegiance to him, but broke away after three years. He was immediately attacked by the armies of neighboring countries in conjunction with Babylon troops and lost his life fighting against them. 597. His son, Yochachin, continued the struggle, but when Nebuchadnezzar arrived in person three months later to direct operations, he surrendered and was deported to Babylon. Accompanied by his court and the nobility, 7,000 citizens together with their families, and 1,000 craftsmen. This was the first breach in the Judean state, which would lead to its ultimate collapse. The final scene of this tragedy was enacted in the reign of his ill-fated successor, Zedekiah, another son of Joachim, and the last king of Judea. He repeated the oath of fidelity to Babylon, 
and all might had been well, had not Egypt continued to stir up trouble, aided from within a pro-Egyptian party. Wishful thinking did the rest. A wave of optimism swept the nation. They had but to revolt in their hatred, then their hated subjection would be ended. In this dangerous delusion, they were encouraged not only by many of the civilian leaders, but also by a prophetic group who, claiming to speak in God's name, assured them of success. They went even further and raised false hopes of a speedy collapse of the Babylonian Empire and the return of the captives together with the sacred vessels which they had been carrying away at the same time. Yamahu now appeared in the streets of Jerusalem with a wooden yoke around his neck to symbolize the continued domination of Babylon. Hananiah, one of the false prophets, broke the yoke inside of the people. Yamahu countered by predicting that instead of a wooden yoke, the nation would soon have an iron yoke fastened upon them. About the same time, he sent his famous letter to the captives in Babylon, counseling them to settle down the land of exile and even to pray for the welfare of the cities where they were residing. But his counsels and Yehuda and Yehuda were disregarded. Ultimately, Zedekiah, probably against his will, was induced to join an anti-Babylonian coalition consisting of Edom, Ammon, Moab, Tyre, Sidon, and Judea. In vain, Jeremiah implored him to keep aloof from foreign entanglements and remain faithful to his oath of allegiance. The pro-Egyptian party was too strong for the king. Nebuchadnezzar dealt energetically with the revolt, dispatching part of his army against Tyre. He laid siege in person to Jerusalem in the winter of 588 or 587 BCE. The advance of the Egyptian army compelled him temporarily to raise a siege. Jeremiah took advantage of this respite to leave Jerusalem for his home and Anathoth. But he was arrested and charged with desertion. In spite of his, pro uh, his protestations of innocence, he was thrown into prison. Secretly visited by the king, he again urged him to make a timely surrender to save the city. But matters were gone too far, and it is doubtful whether the king had the necessary authority, even if he desired. The hopeless revolt moved to its inevitable conclusion. The Egyptians were repulsed by Nebuchadnezzar, who resumed the siege. On the 9th of Tammuz in the year 586 BCE, a breach was made in the wall of Jerusalem. Zedekiah fled, but was overtaken at Jericho. He was conveyed to Ribla, the enemy's headquarters, where, after being compelled to witness the killing of his sons, he was blinded, put into chains, and taken to Babylon. Mm. A month later, Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian commander-in-chief, acting on orders, destroyed Jerusalem. The temple, the royal palace, and many great mansions were set on fire, and the walls raised to the ground. A large part of the population was deported to Babylon, and the overthrow of the Jewish state was complete in 586 BCE. Gedaliah, son of Akim and grandson of Shaphan the scribe, was appointed governor over the remnant that was left behind. But the unhappy community was still not to have rest. Bali's Kino Amon, who resented the existence even of the small and feeble community, probably because he had designs upon Judea himself, dealt the final blow. Using Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, of the defunct royal house as his tool, he had Gedaliah murdered. The assassination availed Ishmael but little, for he flexed to Ammon, but it wrote an appendix, as it were, to the treaty. Those who were left in Judea feared the vengeance of Nebuchadnezzar, and in spite of the urgent advice that events threats, Jeremiah fled to Egypt, 
forcing the prophet to accompany them. This was the third, but this time voluntary exile of the Jewish people, and it finally extinguished any sort of autonomous community in Judea. The lights had gone out and were not to be writ for many years. Wow. The end. The end. Well, Toda Rabbah for the historical story time. That is a first. Uh, very rich in the information as far as how everything completely processed out when you think about <clears throat> the northern kingdom falls, then the southern kingdom falls. And then it's just like we're completely in exile now. So beautiful. Not beautiful that, you know, the exile had to happen, but, you know, Baruch Hashem. Amen. And Toda for the the new intro to historical story time. Already. <laughs> That's our background setting. There's a lot of just political moves going on. There's a lot of struggles. There's all these prophets in the background that are uh, false prophets that are just getting the people all this false hope and stirring it up. And Yamaha who's like, no, like this has got to happen. There's no other way. Wow. Like it's, it's done. Like we have to accept it, man. And so, you know, he, there's a lot of animosity because of this. And you kind of think of this, there's a lot of pro Egyptian rallies and you kind of think of all this political stuff, maybe, maybe similar to, um, what was going on in Yeshua's days with the whole pro-zealots and the, the, the pro-Roman party groups that were in that, that time frame. Right, because it's all and, a precursor. Yes. And Yeshua definitely was exactly like Yermiyahu letting us know the exile is going to happen. And if you look at Yochanan chapter 14... <clears throat> Sleek, uh, he he says, you know, just want to let y'all know, I'm getting ready to go away for a little while. It's about to get crazy. But I just want to let you know, my shalom I give to you. Take heart, I've overcome the world. You know, and then ultimately, when you look at Matityahu 28, he says, go therefore out into all the world and make Talmudim of the nations. That is code for, the Talmud says, the exile, we're sent into it because of making proselytes. Like, for the sake of making proselytes is why we're exiled. So Yeshua, obviously being the oral Torah, manifest. He says, go and make Talmudim. Go and make proselytes, basically. Because when you really look at what the Hebrew is, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, that's code for mikvah, which means to repurpose the human vessel for godly service. So Yeshua's like, go make proselytes because like you're about to go into exile, which means it's time to go make proselytes. Man, that's that's such a just important concept to be grounded in. This whole idea of us being in exile for the sake of proselytizing and it's so interesting and that Hashem describes us when we were in Egypt that we were his legions like his army Ken. his army out to expand the kingdom of Shemaim so we are in the army of the Lord yes and I really want to tap on that 
that idea a little little later on for uh, for the podcast yeah oh come on okay so So. two quick things that i were i was gleaning while you were doing the historical story time is number one you talked about what it what event sparked the fast of gedalia that happens Mm -hmm. on the third of tishrei so that was really cool just hearing about that so the uh significance of that event and number two that we should be praying for the lands that we're exiled into praying for that for that land actually to be blessed and um it is interesting because Yahoo 29 7 is where we find that it says seek the prosperity of the city to which you are which wow Seek the prosperity of the city to which I have sent you as exiles. Pray to Adonai on its behalf. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. For this is what Adonai Zevaot, Elohei Yisrael says. And then he says, do not be deceived by the prophets and diviners among you. Do not listen to the dreams you elicit from them. So... Just to uh, just kind of re-emphasize that point that uh, was so gracefully uh, elucidated for us. So, so Don, and thank you, thank you for elucidating that and and like highlighting some practical, or some practical takeaways, you know, about where we just highlight the fast of um, good dollar. You got it, yes. So amazing. So. Yeremiah, he's such just a interesting character as far as the, the prophet goes. Like he's so he's so open. He's so it's like it, there's like there's such a human aspect to him. You know, no other prophet. He's he's so unique in that no other prophet revealed so much about his his feelings, his emotional uh, like well being, his his outlook, and just like all these passions and hurts that he had. He was so very open about it. And he really just gives us this, like this, the psychology of the prophet. He just reveals that to us and just lays bare all this emotion of, of the, what it takes to be a man who's singled out as the mouthpiece of God. Wow. And you, you, you affect this, you, you'd expect this elation. Oh yes, I'm, I have such a direct connection to God. I'm talking to his people, this and this, but he, he didn't have the uh, privilege, if you will, that, uh, Yahoo had of prophesying all these good things to come. You know, he was the one who he was deemed a, a traitor. He was even, you know, like betrayed and uh, uh, nearly killed by by his. You know, he was a prophet and a priest of the priestly line. He was nearly betrayed and killed by his own people and even his family. Wow. You know, because the very the very fact that he wanted to go with the good tidings, if you will, of Egypt will save us. You know, he, he, he was deemed a, a traitor. And so he's, he really imbi- just embodies this, this idea of this, this poignant sorrow. And it almost seems like he's rebellious towards his divine mission. Wow. But, so you're trying to say he was acquainted with grief. Yes. Very <laughs> well acquainted with grief, very well attached to the people. An attached, oh, come on now. Yes. 
You know, it's and he was very similar to uh, Moshe and uh, Yeshayahu. Ooh. You know, and I, I, um, Isaiah and, and and Moses. You know, and his humility. He he seemed to kind of push away from this. You know, like this. How how I'm I'm so unworthy in the face of all this this majesty, this divine majesty. But yet, when Hashem was was asking, "Whom shall I send?" He says, "Here I am. Send me." Wow. And so he has the same humility and almost this distrust of his own powers. Because if he relied on himself, that would cause him to be an idolater. Yes. So, you know, I think that's very, very interesting because the number one aspect of the Redeemer of Israel is humility, which causes the Redeemer to be so, um, they're so empty of their self, like they don't rely on themselves for anything. You know, you think about when cousin Corey comes to Moshe and is like, you and Aharon take too much on yourselves. You exalt yourselves above the congregation. We're all holy. And Moshe falls on his face. He doesn't like, rebuttal come back at him and say no Hashem gave us this spot what's wrong with you think about it he goes no let Hashem do this like I'm not gonna put myself in this place of judgment then Mashiach Yeshua how humble was he when he was sought out in the middle of the night in a garden while he's praying with his Talmudim and his Talmud Yehuda betrays him with a kiss he doesn't smack him in the face he doesn't like call down a myriad of melakim to take out everybody that was in the garden you know he doesn't like destroy the world you know and it's just kind of like he's falsely accused he's you know humble and meek so you know, to bring that up with Yahu and how closely connected he is to Hashem, just to paint that whole picture is amazing for us to think about as we have been brought near to Hashem through Messiah Yeshua. How much more should we be empty of ourselves? Right, man. And just the, you touched on just like that, that perfect point. You know, even when he was Yeshua was being betrayed, you know, what did he, he, he say on the, the execution? Say, like, you know, lean in the, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right. Oh, man. Come on. You know, this is, this is really a lot of what Yemayahu, like, alludes to through his sufferings. You know, because, like, in, in no other prophet, like, is this sympathy with the condemned seems so strongly as with him. He has so much sympathy for him. Wow. And when he was taunted and jeered at, like he didn't desire any evil that he he wanted to foretell, and so like he actually pleaded with God for leniency on behalf of the people, asserting that they've been deceived by false leaders instead. You know, forgive them for they know not what they do. They've been just been led away. Oh. You know, instead he just displays this tenderness, this fervently praying for the people, and just just bewailing their cruel fate. And you know, it's just wow and just incredible that he would just became the object of just all these nefarious schemes against his life 
from from the priest, like we talked about, and from his even his, his own family joined the conspiracy. Mm. And you know, even when he was fated to see his prophets fulfilled, he was given the choice to go to Babylon, where he'd be treated well, or remaining with the remnants of the people in the desolate country. Wow! And as a patriot, he actually chose a later. He chose to suffer with the people. And so you have this stern moralist that he was, who became this loving comforter to the people during that during that time. And you kind of almost see him as this realistic optimist that he was like realist and that he wouldn't be low the way, like allowing the or allow the people to just be low the way, low the way by all this false, false hope, if you will, wow. you know, and a false sense of security. But yeah, he was optimist because like beyond this, this immediate darkness of exile, he saw like this, this beautiful light for his people that, that and that spiritual light was like this purifying by their sufferings, being restored to their homeland and re and having a reunited nation living on their own soil. And so he still he still looked towards the future. He still saw these things, but he wasn't going to ignore um, the the bad that was done. Man, it's it's interesting. <clears throat> Because he also really just combines, he's like this, uh, like mighty morphine prophet, <laughs> if I can use that term. Right. Go ahead. You can use it. All right. So he he it's interesting because he combines this kind of tenderness of that you see in Hoshea, um, this this fearlessness of Amos and like the just the majesty of Yeshiyahu, and. You know, of course, like them all, he's this preacher of repentance, but he he's holding out for the promise of restoration. And he really goes to show, show us that in our darkest moments, we, we need to keep our faith and trust in God and not desert him. And right. it's, it's just interesting because it's it's mentioned um, by by different rabbis that Israel did not disappear after this overwhelming disaster was due to the activity of two men, Jeremiah and his disciple, uh, Yezekiel. Yezekiel. <laughs> so we just got through with Ezekiel. Oh. You know, so we mentioned that there's an interpretation that Jeremiah was his father. Right. And so we're really coming in part part two, if you will, because it's, the, the, it's very similar half to in that there's prophecies against Egypt for their sins. Right. And it, it's like you have... Uh, Yehezkel, the son, and Yamahu, the father. So, and it's kind of like the son is leading us to the father, if you will. Oh, come on, <laughs> just man! The way the is set up, it's just it's beautiful in this way. Okay, so that's exactly why Hashem takes over after the nine plagues, because the son Moshe leads Egypt. To the Father, Hashem, because the Son is speaking, speaking, speaking. Repent, repent, repent. Okay, you won't listen to me. Well, then you have to talk to my dad. Man, and it's, it's just so interesting because, um, you know what? What is bow backwards? Of Father, <laughs> come on. Father, and so you have this, this just this beautiful illusion. 
um, to, to that whole, that whole concept, you know, just, just a little quick more thing about, um, about him. All right. Is, you know, he was, he mentioned that he was, he was really, he really connected and really sympathized with the people. And he was, you know, really against this leadership that was leading them away. And he compared them. There's like, but they're shepherds of the people. And then their refusal to seek God, they misled their, their charges. And while, while they didn't profit, we're talking about leadership, their flocks were scattered. And instead of warning the people of their plight, so as to rouse them to ward off the evil which threatened them and to repent, the leadership adopted this complacent attitude, healing the grievous sickness of the nation by just denying that there was anything wrong in the first place. Man. And so this this really, you know, hits right on with the Parsha because it talks about Bo, you know, come to Pharaoh. Well, why do you want to come to Pharaoh? He's the enemy. What does that even mean? Right. And it's just just you have just these the the Hasidic insights on that really talks about that we can't ignore our problems and what Pharaoh represents is the the like the the root evil the root thing that's distancing us from God mm. and if we really want to serve a shim we can't ignore these problems we can't just go off on this this false idea of everything's all good and everything's wonderful when there actually is a problem we have to acknowledge it and we have to go to its very root so we can be healed deeply and so that we can actually truly and honestly restore a relationship with Hashem and with other people wow so here here tag I so much agree with that and I just can't help but think about the name of Yermiyahu with Yehezekiel as you're talking about coming to that place that is the root of what keeps us at a, at a, a standpoint of being distanced from Hashem. Like whatever is the source of what creates that distance. When you look at Yermiyahu, literally the word uh, mar is in there. As in, like, uh, bitterness. You know? Wow. And when you look at it saying, instead of Yerim, which is your, as in Yermiyahu, you can look at it as Mari or Mori, which is like bitter, my bitterness. And then it's at the end is Yah. So Mari Yah. And it sounds like Moria, like Mount Moria, right? Like the place, the Akida. Oh my goodness. But then if you look at just breaking it down with that, it's also my place of bitterness with Hashem. And then you have the son who is the one who strengthens. Hazak, like the one who strengthens, who shall strengthen us. And the right hand of the father is called the mighty hand of God. The son is the right hand of Hashem. So you have the sun strengthening us in the place of bitterness with Hashem. When you look at both of these Haftarot put together and Bo El Paro coming to Faro, this is what Mashiach Yeshua has done, which is kind of why if you look at the majority of Jewish uh, believers and um, people who were expecting something else when Mashiach Ben Yosef showed up, 
It's because the point is taking us to the mountain, the place where we are bitter and the place where there is immense suffering, deep hidden pain that is being revealed and dealing with that root issue, overcoming it, removing it so that we can be truly connected and attached to Hashem, revitalized as a person from the inside out. So that way, when Mashiach ben Yosef shows up, and he will, not only will it be time for the Geula, but the Geula will already have taken root in us because there will be nothing left there with the help of Hashem if we truly come to Moriah. If we truly come to that place when it's time for the Geula, we not only will be in it, but we will positionally be at a place of freely able and fully able and capable of enjoying it to the depths. Because we we went there. We went to that place where it's like, I don't want to talk about that. That was a painful subject for me before. It's like, no, let's go deal with that right now. Take the sun, the mighty hand with you, and we're going to go there. Man, that's a, that's amazing because, you know, Yosef also came to Pharaoh. Ooh. <laughs> you know, so, and, and I love, I love your, that whole, the whole precedent on, uh, Yermahu's name. Man. Yermaya's name. Brooke <clears throat> so, you know, Shemot. You know, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned this whole idea. You have the word Mar, you know, like a whole bitterness and you have the word Yah. And it's like, when else has God become bitter or been associated with bitterness? And you think about the whole idea of the Sota, oh. where they literally took a passage of Hashem's name and they dipped it in these these bitter waters that the Sota would drink from. Oh my goodness! And so this is this is the idea of suffering that that Jeremiah really embodies. Um, I I got the the um, honor and opportunity to to meet some of the the podcasters and online community and so i want to give a, a, a shout out to michael who uh brought this kind of idea out based on the commentary in the in the art school shouts out to homeboy homeboy <laughs> so it's, it, he commented on this idea he pointed out this idea of the taskmasters in egypt mm. just talking about this whole idea of associating with the suffering of others so the taskmasters set the quotas and held the foreman responsible to enforce compliance. If the slaves fell short of fulfillment, the Egyptians beat the Jewish foreman. This was similar to the anti-Semitic strategy used by later persecutors who forced the Jews to mistreat one another. But the foremen sacrificed themselves to protect, to protect their fellow Jews. They accepted the beatings and refused to retaliate against the overworked Jews. Because of their devotion to their brethren, the foremen were chosen to be the elders in the wilderness. Thus, the Torah teaches that the road to leadership is paved with unselfish dedication to the people and not self-aggrandizement. Ooh. And so this whole beautiful idea of just associating and taking up the suffering of others in order to help lift them up and thereby sanctify Shem's name. You know, um, Ma'am Lois, he comments on the idea of the, the exiles and the redemption. And he compares 
the when we were in Egypt and our forefathers were in Egypt, he compares them to being like this children, these children. And like the process through the wilderness is like growing up. And now we, we, it's the age of maturity and the age of adulthood. And so we relate to God and people in situations on a different level. And so here you have these people who were literally associated with all this physical suffering and they went through it. And, uh, you know, for us, it's, it's a little hard to connect to. Yeah. Um, because we're not undergoing that physical persecution, but there, we, we know that, you know, as you, as you age and as you come into adulthood, like man, man, those comments on this whole idea of, in this exile, we're like adults now. And so we see reality in a whole different way. Yeah. And we understand, we, we talked about this before, the whole idea of the spiritual realm and how even all physicality, all matters, you know, comprised of atoms. But like 99.999% of that atom is empty space. True. So really, the real world is a spiritual world. And, and Rabbi Shroll, or you call him the distinguished gentleman, he quotes in this idea that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against um, a bit spiritual forces and principalities. That's right. This is so true and this is so key. And so there's a concept handling this exile like adults, you know, of seeing in a spiritual sense and spiritual persecution. There's a concept brought by the Baal Shem Tov that he mentions whenever we have um, this, this excessive desire, whether it be, oh, hey, I just, just want to relax, I just want to just lay down, just be lazy, or, you know, chas shalom, or, or lust, chas shalom, or anger, chas shalom, or any of these bad traits, what Hashem is doing, we are brought into this low level in order to redeem a spark and lift it up. Oh, wow. And it, it's such a beautiful concept because we remember that he addressed us as legions. He addressed us as soldiers and armies. And so we think every time we're going to struggle, we're these bad people that we've fallen and and that we've fallen so short. But why have we, quote unquote, fallen? It's not that we've fallen. It's not that we're failing. I'm not talking about doing the act. I'm talking about feeling the emotion, the desire of it. Um. It's that Hashem is sending us to a place where we can redeem that spark and lift it up. And it might be a spark in someone else. It's literally, you know, it could be someone else in your community across the world that has this struggle. Because we know as Jewish people, we're all connected. And so if you're feeling a certain desire of any type, whatever it may be, that's not the time to give up. That's not the time to cave into it. That's the time to understand you're a soldier that was sent on a mission by Hashem. And you're there supporting your brothers in a way that's completely spiritual and beautiful and practical. You know, when you say that, that's why Bluetooth exists. Because it is a manifestation of a higher reality, which is Kalal Yisrael. Wow. <laughs> we are yeah. literally the essence of Bluetooth. So I hope everyone is hearing, and myself included, what is being presented because, man, that is amazing to think about redeeming a spark and being able to pull up and support a brother or a sister who we don't even know about 
who may be going through something and we have the opportunity to be a helping hand for them. That is incredible. It's, it's, a, it's such a, a good concept. Just keep in mind to keep you going, you know? Man. And as long as you resist the desire, you don't cave in, then, like, you're doing so much, uh, just incredible movements in the spiritual world, the kingdom of heaven. Wow. And I, right, love the, I love the, really quick on the, my, my legions, you know, um, I love the fact that you address that when Hashem is saying, let my people go, he's literally saying, let my armies go. Mm-hmm. And that is just absolutely incredible just to think about as we're called Am Yisrael, we're also Zeva Am. We are, that's why Hashem is called Zeva Ot. Master of Legions, because we are the legions that he's master of. So that's just, that's a whole nother level of like really seeing ourselves with our true identity. So, Rukshim. Yes, man. Incredible. Here we and go. And with that, we go to the Half Torah. <laughs> Welcome to the Half Torah. So, Yamahu 46, 13 to 28. You have Egypt being told to prepare her army for war. Uh, she's being defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in 19. She's exiled or will be. Uh, there's no hopeful victory. Why Hashem punishes Egypt? And 26, after exile, the Egyptians will return to their land. And 27, 28 is just this encouragement for B'nai Israel. And it's wonderful that we stopped at this whole idea of army. So I like that you, you brought that back into the scene. Because he mentioned this in 14 about all these cities you have. Um, Nof and uh, Panchez, the, the capital cities, where Nof is Memphis. Um, and it's just saying, stand fast and prepare weapons for yourself, Pharaoh, for Nebuchadnezzar's sword has already devoured countries around you. Yehuda has fallen, you are slated to be punished next. So the prophet's actually warning Egypt that Nebuchadnezzar is about to attack and destroy her. And unless the Egyptians do Teshuva, they will be defeated. Mm. The and Egyptians? So goes, yes. Really? So it's just interesting. What's that? I said, really, the Egyptians do Teshuvah or they will be defeated. Yeah, so that that whole quick concept is, you know, we think the prophets, okay, they just talk to Israel, help them do Teshuvah, except for that one guy, you know, oh, what's the name? Oh, yeah, Yonah. <laughs> but these other people, they went there and they weren't just prophesying doom and gloom for the nations. They were saying... Hey guys, the kingdom of heaven can be for you as well. Okay. Do Teshuva, return to God, and things can be better for you. I just want to shout out the fact that you are literally laying down even more proof that the whole idea that the New Testament as uh, as portrayed by the church and Catholicism, universalism, whatever you want to call it, that that is false. Hashem did not just now decide, I want to go get the nations and bring them in the covenant and cause them to be filled with the spirit too. Yeah, that, that's been around for a while. That's, <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. So that's, that's needed. So just to tie that back, because, you know, shameless plug, I just started a series with another one of our Avengers 
on the letter to the Romans. And we talked about this and literally in the first chapter of Romans, in that letter, Shaul, the distinguished gentleman says that this has already been prophesied before time in the Holy Scriptures and in the writings of the prophets. So podcast, Haftarah, Parsha, Bo, we just brought that up. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Hashem, you're so awesome. Wow. <laughs> okay, go back. Go do your thing. Okay. Uh, so the whole idea of legions, going back to that, just as Hashem is the one who brings victory to the side who he considers deserving of it. And you see this in Yehosha when he attacked I. You know, there's someone who took a consecrated thing and they lost. Yep. Um, you see Devorah in versus, you know, King Yavin and and they had victory even though they had were outnumbered. You see this in the Shaw and the Philistines in many places where son Yonatan takes a battle and wins it with his, his armor bearer. And then vice versa, Shaw loses it because he, um, you know, was was involved in this whole idea of necromancy. Like he, he visited a woman who did that. They raised Shmuel, uh, Samuel, and be, it's because he sinned, he lost the war and fell in battle. Mm. So um, we go go on and talk about, it goes into verse 15. Why was each of your mighty war heroes swept away by the enemy? He could not stand because Hashem punished him away. So according to like the works such as like the Zohar and stuff, this um, Amriyaka is Egypt's guardian angel. And Egypt is now doomed because the guardian angel in heaven lost its power. Wow. And so this whole idea of, you know, guardian angels, it is a, a Jewish concept. Yep. So if you you want more guardian angels, do more mitzvahs, say more blessings. Hmm. <laughs> You know, stay attached to a shim. Get you some. And there's just this long, uh, long phase, verse 16 and 17, of allies deserting Egypt, no longer having faith. People in Babylonian army, or maybe in Pharaoh's own armies, are calling Pharaoh a coward because he he delayed because he thought uh, that if he went out to battle, then it'd be like a bad luck. It was unlucky, unlucky hours. Really? And so he delayed the uh, the battle. And so, you know, they had this arrogance about him. This still arrogance that it can't happen to us. There's no way it can happen to us. This whole denial. Everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> Everything's going great. You know, and, and Ashim's, Ashim's like, no, Nev's going to win. Nebuchadnezzar, Nev, yeah, he's going to win. <laughs> he ain't never gonna lose <laughs> the king whose name is Hashem of hosts will show that he is the final say and not Pharaoh wow and so it's, it's interesting because it's also in verse 18 it also alludes to this future era where it talks about I am alive swears the king whose name is Hashem of hosts as surely as Mount Tavor stands among the mountains and Mount Carmel among the mountains by the sea both being firmly positioned in the locations he Nebuchadnezzar will come into Egypt and will not leave without defeating it. So Shem's like, no, he's he's gonna win. But there's an allusion to the future era here. And so we got our first story time. Come on. Rabbi Eliezer Hakfor taught in the future era, the Bati the houses of study 
and the synagogues that are outside of Eretz Israel will be transplanted to the Holy Land. Woo! We from this verse, uh, from the verse Yamaho 46, 8. As Tavar is fixed among the mountains and Carmel traveled across the sea. These two mountains were originally outside Eretz Israel. Mount Tavor in Bet Alim and Mount Kabal in As, uh, Aspamea. When the Almighty was about to give the Torah, both of them desired to be chosen as a site for this great event. To the end, the angel who was appointed over the mountains began moving them towards Haran Sinai. But the Almighty nevertheless rejected them and chose to give the Torah on Sinai. Hartavor and Harkamel were, however, recompensed for their disappointment by being uprooted from their location and replanted in Israel. Later, special events took place on both of them. At Tavor, the Jews were miraculously saved in, in the prophetess Devorah's time, which in the next half Torah. And on Carmel's Hashem's unity was proclaimed in Eliyahu's time. If these two mountains were moved to Eretz Israel just because their intense desire to have Torah taught on them, even for a short while during Matan Torah, then the synagogues and the houses of constant Torah study will certainly be transplanted to the Holy Land. And I, I, I think I got altitude sickness. Oh, I love it. Har, 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 har. Man, what have you been doing to your suit, man? Come on. And I, I heard that. I just heard you say har, har, har. Mountain, so, mountain, mountain. Can I, can I just hear you say, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains? I see what you did there. Uh, so this this whole idea of these mountain moves, moving is from this intense desire for Torah. Oh, come on. Do it. Come on. Bring it. This is this is where it's out. This is the whole this the whole backdrop to moving mountains. You know, it's not just whatever you want. It's your desires according to Hashem's desires. Why? Because you're pursuing Torah. You know, uh, the vote. You say, you know, if you want Him to fill your desires, make His desire your desires. <laughs> and so, you want to move mountains? Get in line with Hashem. He will fight your battles, and He will make sure you win. Why? Because you're if you're in His will then you're the most deserving. Can we can we just tag to that that you said houses of Torah study, literally meaning synagogues for sure, but literally the houses in which we dwell, our dwelling spaces. If you're playing a podcast right now of Torah, that counts. If you're reading some Torah right now, that counts. If you're davening, that really counts. You know, like making your houses, houses of Torah study, and Hashem is going to transplant those into Eretz Israel. Are you serious? Come on, man. It's incredible. Wow. Told that we Bob for that study time. Baruch Hashem, Or store time. Wow. Store time. Yeah, store Story. <laughs> hey. <no. laughs> yeah, right. That's study wow. and Torah and story all together. It's story time. Yeah. <laughs> well. So speaking of A, Egypt is likened to A, calf, and A, serpent. 
Oh. This whole idea of the serpent, the crocodile that uh, Yechezkel mentions. Right. And you have this idea, Egypt is compared to this, this beautiful, this beautiful calf. And this is really, you know, we talked about nations. They always are given the symbol of an item like a, a sinking ship, a crocodile, a cow, you know, a snake, the serpent, whatever. Um, Egypt is given many. This is another one besides the crocodiles, the whole calf. Because they had this great agriculture that allowed them riches and splendor. And it really just, you know, mentions this, this kind of vivid imagery of this cow being just split into, and just cut in pieces. You know, it's also a snarky remark, just like the crocodile we talked about last Porsche, because they worship the bull. Wow. And, you know, um, we, we, we get in later in verse 22, it mentions that their, um, they, their cry will be far reaching like the serpents. Right. The hiss. Yes. And so it's like, why are they likened? Why is their outcry like the serpents? And what way will it be like the serpents? And there's this midrash that, uh, that explains that when the Almighty cursed the snake and Ganadin by saying, you must crawl on your bellies, angel flew down and chopped off its feet. At that point, the serpent uttered such a piercing scream that its outcry resounded in the entire world. Man. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, like the safe serpent was blamed. Uh, for leading them astray, so Egypt is being compared to them because they led uh, the 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 Jewish people astray by giving them all this false hope. Mm, mm, mm. It's really interesting if you go back up, um, back into verse twenty one. It mentions, "For the day of their downfall has come upon them; their time of their punishment." And the word there for the day of their downfall, it's it's uh, Yom Idam. Like Yom for day, and then Aleph Yud Dalit Mim. And it's interesting because um, this is day of often translated as day is calamity. And interestingly, the Arabs actually call their festivals the Ed or the Idam, literally, which literally means calamity. What? And similarly, the Talmud relates that all these days of pagan celebrations are Yom Idam. Like days of calamity. And so when you think about that, every time you're celebrating um, this this day that has roots in pagan organs, origins, you're literally saying, I know, Hashem, you created the first man as gardener to tend to your world. I know our, our idea is to continue your work of creation and still order and light and love and unity. But let's just kind of uh, celebrate this day. Let's throw a wrench in the whole machine and let's disrupt it and cause chaos. Literally, when you're celebrating these pagan holidays, you're not only spitting in Hashem's face, but you're literally causing chaos in the spiritual realms. You're creating calamity in the physical realms as well and bringing just just plagues like this this uh, Torah Porsche into your life. Wow. And not only into our lives, but into creation itself. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know. Just another shameless plug, and I stopped doing it. Stop plugging in stuff. But uh, in the letter to the Romans, chapter one, part of this plague 
is the why we have the trading of natural desires for man-made engineered desires. And I'm talking about physical desires. So why are we dealing with same-sex marriage? Why are we dealing with gender issues and all that kind of stuff? Those come from this very idea that we're talking about right now. Just throwing wrenches into Hashem's creation and blueprint. It's just like, yeah, Hashem, I'll show you how we should do it. And he's like, okay, there's going to be uh, consequences for that. Yeah, with all these consequences. For reaction, there's an equal opposite reaction. Man. You know, just the way it works. You know, it, it, it keeps going on this whole idea. There's these these big armies. Babylon is sending a massive army that can't be measured. It's compared to, like, this whole idea of locusts. And oh. you have this idea. It says, um, the daughter of Egypt will be shamed, verse 24, for she will be given into the hand of a northern nation. And so, yes, Babylon is, is geographically above it to the north, but also north, it, it designates the direction of heaven where divine punishment originates. Mm. And so when it's talking about this north, it's talking about this divine punishment that's coming forth. <laughs> and so he's saying, just as I will punish Pharaoh, so I will also punish all who trust in him. And this also refers to the Jewish people who trusted Pharaoh. You know, it mentions that many... And the tower that many Jewish people were actually killed within the plague of, of darkness. Wow. And so, you know, there's another yet a similarity to our, our Torah portion. Right. And we go on this, this whole idea of, of why is Hashem called uh, Hashem of host? Because this indicates his, like, his ability to repay Egypt for the numerous evil deeds that she inflicted upon B'nai Israel throughout the ages. And so Egypt in itself, its name hints at this. You have, um, so it, it hints at this idea of hardship. You have the word sar, which is like tyrant, Saudi Reish, mm -hmm. and Saudi Reish hey, which is like hardship. So you put them together, it's like this, this whole idea of an oppressor. Wow. And notice what flanks that word is the two Mashiachs, Moshe and Mashiach Yeshua. Moshe being the open mem and Mashiach Yeshua being the closed mem. Yes. And in the middle you have this whole, you have, uh, you, you would have Sanity, which would be like my, my tyrant. So the tyrant that oppresses you is literally like trapped in by, subjugated by these two Mashiachs. That's right. So that's why Egypt is the the allusion to all the exiles because it hints at like how we're going to be redeemed by him <laughs> so it's just a, a beautiful beautiful um way to look at it you don't have you know there's there's a way you can look at it in a negative view and a way you can look at a positive view right. and it's about balancing these to live like a healthy life i mean so you know when you tie that back to where we just came from with our practical takeaway is that we have to come head on and face on to our hardships and that which is the element of causing and creating distance between us and Hashem like meet that that struggle that challenge head on face on because that is subjugated to Mashiach so like 
You can't lose. Man. Just incredible. You know, and this is why Mashiach says, if you want to follow after me, you must be willing to lose your life for my sake. You know, deny yourself. Because if we can empty out ourselves enough, and if we can efface ourselves enough, like when we take on our challenges like that, it becomes a completely different atmosphere. Like we're completely different because now we're letting Hashem fill our vessel, that empty space that you talk about inside of uh, the, what do you say, an atom? You know, there's the nucleus and the electrons and all that. So mm-hmm. all that space, that's the spirituality. If we can really tap into that within who we are as followers of Hashem, you know, that's where he's pulling us to. That is the the bow right there. That is what we should come to. Following Mashiach, denying ourselves. I love it. You know, we have, we have someone who, who did this really well. Um, and this is in the time frame of um, uh, uh and he's known as as the very righteous king of Yehuda. This is uh, Yoshiyahu. Mm. He was the one who got rid of every symbol of idolatry from the land, the, the the trees, the statues, the temples. But he was unaware that there was actually a lot of secret idol worship going on in his in his day wow. that he just had no idea about. And he was so assured of of the the sinlessness of Israel at the time that he actually refused um, Egypt to pass through. This is when when Pharaoh Necho was was going to wage wage war. He refused him because he's quoting a verse saying Hashem promised in the Torah that Bnei Israel are righteous. No foreign soldiers will pass through the land. Wow! But he didn't know about this hidden idolatry. And so he went against the advice of Yomayahu, who said, hey, just grant him his request, and and it will be fine. But instead he refused, and so there's this battle with them at uh, Megiddo. Mm-hmm. And so the members of King uh, Yoshiahu's um, generation were not worthy of their counterparts like they were in King Hezekiah's uh, time. And the Jewish army was defeated and Yoshiahu, unfortunately, was mortally wounded by his enemy's arrows. And so on his deathbed, he acknowledged the Amadi's justice. Wow. But it's interesting because the Midrash goes on to comment that his death was accepted by Shem like a sacrifice on the altar. Oh, come on. In fact, his name applies this from the idea of, of Shai, a gift to a Shem. Wow. Wow. And so you, you, you just look at everything that's written within the, the Besorah, you know, right. from, you know, what Mashiach said. And even later on in, in the letters and this whole idea of like a sacrifice, the death being accepted as a sacrifice on altar. You know, it's just even even it's even in the, uh, ingrained here. That is incredible. You know, and this is the king who came to the throne at eight years old. You know, like, he was under 
bar mitz or bar mitzvah, you know, when he came up on the throne. And literally, if you look at Second Chronicles thirty-four one, it literally says in the Ebrit, Ben Shimone Shanaim. And if you think about the Shimone Esra, you know, the Amidah, you get this picture of, of this king right here. Like he approaches the throne just like the Shimone, you know, like as in Shimone Esra kind of thing. So there's this idea of, you know, how when we do the Shimone Esra, that we have to empty ourselves and for this king to come to the throne at this age and empty out the land of idolatry, you know, that, that, that is a victory that may we all achieve every single time we do the Shemona Esrei in our lives to just really go there and, and really like boost our Amuna. Because every single prayer time we have is an opportunity to boost our Amuna. Man, um, I'm in there, man, and I feel like we're, we're synced up right now because I'm having to have on that concept of Shemone Ezra. <laughs> Come on. But first, but first. Verse, but first 20, verse 26, it mentions this again, this 40 years later that Egypt will return from her exile and again live her own days. We alluded to that in uh, Yechezkel. Um, but... There's this idea that that's brought forth from that, and and that's if you know if the nations are returned, if such a nation, if a if, if a nation such as Egypt is returned, whose very name connotates an oppressor, mm. if they're returned, then how much more so will the Israel be? Cool. And so we look at the, the return of of these Gentile nations, and we shouldn't envy that. We should look at that and be like, well, how much more so for us? How much more so for the people who, who literally live in the world, but not of it? Wow. You know, because you don't, you don't get that with the Gentile life. You don't really have to make a lot of sacrifices for Hashem. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything bad about um, anyone, you know, anyone, you know, but it's just, it's just not the same lifestyle, period. That's true. You know, if Mashiach were to come back and, you know, and, and you know, I know he's, he's Mashiach, he's the king of Israel. So, you know, this is just a completely ridiculous example. But if you were just to have, you know, uh, like a meet him out for lunch, you would, if you're not like Jewish or observant, you really want to have anything in common with him. You say, hey, you want to go out to eat on, on Shabbat on Saturday? No, it's Shabbat. Hey, you want to eat this restaurant? No, I, I eat kashrut. Right. You know, it's like you're like, how much connection can you have with Yeshua Hamashiach? Like, if 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 you if you're not really following and living like him, man, you know, you become the servants in the house of Yosef who did not know Yosef. You become the paro at the beginning of Sefer Shemot who did not know Yosef. And oppress the Jewish people. Oh, they forgot Yosef. Yeah. And when, when you don't, you know, kind of like out of sight, out of mind. 
Yep. You know, you're not constantly in, engaged um, within a person or with a life, you know, eventually you're going to forget them. That is very true. And so let us, let us stay uh, davening and doing mitzvahs and Torah studies so we can stay engaged with Mashiach. Amen. And just to tag to that, that is the meaning of Yochanan's uh, statement uh, in uh, chapter 17 where he says, where Yeshua actually says it, and this is eternal life, that you may know the Father and his Mashiach. Mm. So literally knowing Yeshua is an aspect of eternal life. Wow. So when we're davening, that's eternal life. When we're Torah studying, that's eternal life. This podcast right now, facilitating eternal life. Thank you, Hashem, for the opportunity. It's like that, that verse and and the li- life was in him and by his, you know. Right. <laughs> and that life was the light of men. Right. Kind of like the whole blessing of, of uh, seed, seed, you know. With you is life, and by your light we shall see light. Ken. Amazing. There's uh, Yochanan 1.4 that says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It's open for everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Keep going, Hasis. You got uh, two tabs. You got the Shemone Esrei and the armies, the legions, the Jewish people. Oh, okay. I think I already hit that the legions tab. All right. Well, All right, So I'm down down on one tab left. We got our, our the final two closing verses, which is really just this this wonderful, beautiful comfort to Bnei Israel um, that we've been leading into. And you know, it says, "And you do not fear my servant Yaakov, the Jewish nation, and do not be afraid, Israel, for I will rescue you from afar, even though you are far from your land." unlike the Egyptians who are close to their home, and your offspring from the land of their captivity, Yaakov will be at ease and repose. He will be tranquil, and none will disturb. Wow. So it's, it's interesting because it, it, it hints at, actually, uh, this promise for B'nai Israel to return from all these four exiles. And it's hidden within this this fourfold expression of peace. Wow. Which is uh, Vashav, he will be at ease. Then you have Vashakat, which is he will oppose. You have Vashanan, he will be tranquil. And the last one, the En Macharit, which is he, none will disturb. Uh, so they hint at, at all these exiles. Um, you had the first one, Vayashev, which hints at the Babylonian exile, where they actually dwelt relatively in physical comfort, and their really only discomfort was that they were ge- geographically far off from Israel. <laughs> then you have the other one, uh, the second one, which is like the quietness, it alludes to quietness, is the Persian Empire, because the empire persecuted the Jews. And then Greece, Greece is alluded to where it says... Um, and this is because they will have physical and mental peace since the Greeks made evil decrees forbidding the Jews to keep the Torah. 
And the last one, of course, would refer to uh, the Edomite exile, the present exile where we're in, uh, the En Macharid, is they will not disturb. See, because of, of Edom, it says this, because no one will cause trembling since this exile is characterized by terror and fear. And, you know, if you ever looked into uh, the stuff that was done, um, the evil and the atrocities of the, that, that go around the feast of, of Christmas and Saturnalia and New Year's, you know, Sylvester, you will see that that is extremely, extremely true. Man. Wow. And so it's very, in, very interesting. You know, these these uh, exiles were hinted in, in Yako's dream at the ladder. Right. You know, he says, do not fear. Hashem says, do not fear. I myself will terminate the last exile because he sees the Edomite exile is going on forever. So Hashem says, no, I'll take care of that myself, just like I did in Egypt. Right. But just hinting at this idea because there's these four-fold expressions of peace, and that's something that, that should sound very familiar because we have the last Parsha in Vayera, Hashem gives us four promises. That's right. You talking about Shemot 6-6? Six, six? Go for it. Where it says, uh, Hashem talking to Moshe, say to the Israelites, I am Adonai. Number one, I will bring you out. Yes. <laughs> Number <laughs> two, I will, or Slika, and I will deliver you. Number three, I will redeem you. Number four, I will take you as my own. So there's the idea of deliverance, like salvation. And then uh, that is twofold. That is bringing you out and delivering you from their bondage. So bringing us and separating us from that entity, that relationship that has us captured, delivering us, completely taking away that which was capturing us, redeeming us, changing us, and then you have taking you as my own. Now your relationship status changes. You know, you think about a single person who gets married. You know, when you enter underneath the hoopah, everything about you changes. You literally, as the sages say, become a newborn. So, yeah. That is Shemot 6.6 6 and verse 7. So, just like, thank you so much for that elucidation. And that whole thing of the hoopah is incredibly beautiful. Well, that's a job, You know, it's it's just it's so interesting because you have this idea of like this these four this four alludes to like this this idea of of being redeemed and the redemption itself. And you know, we mentioned last time these three cups of punishment for Egypt because this is what the cupbearer says. He says cup three times, mm -hmm. but there's a fourth time that the cup is mentioned, not from the cupbearer. But within the text, mm. and it's interesting because you know Yosef uh, was actually redeemed from the pit based on his dreams. Oh, and so this this fourth cup, this idea of four, has this idea of redemption and bringing out. And uh, furthermore, these these four 
um, expressions that that you read off so eloquently of Hashem's promises allude to the four cups we drink at at Pesach. Amen. And you know all so all that these four cups compared to uh, this idea of redemption. But interestingly, there's actually a fifth cup called the cup of Eliyahu. Ooh. And this, this, uh, according to some commentaries, actually alludes to uh, Shavuot, oh. which was the giving of the Torah, which it says, what was the purpose of the exile? The purpose of the exile was to give the Torah to B'nai Israel. Ooh. And so, yes, there are these four aspects of redemption, but then there's the fifth one. There's the one that comes after because, because the, the, the last indeed was actually the first in thought. Oh. You know, Hashem created man last. Why? Because the, the last indeed, the last that thing that was created was actually the first thing in mind. You just had to prep for that first thing. Mm-hmm. Now, what's more interesting is it doesn't stop there because there's actually a fifth word in these expressions we've been talking about. <laughs> it says, Vasha Yaakov, Vashakat, Vasha Anan, the En Macharid, which is Yaakov will be at ease and repose. He'll be tranquil and none will disturb. That fifth word is Yaakov. <laughs> and it, 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 gets, it gets better. Oh, bring it. So, Yaakov is spelled very, very uniquely here. We've mentioned this before on, on, on these podcasts. Yeah. It's actually spelled, his name is spelled with the extra Vav. From Eliyahu. Yes. <laughs> I'll be honest on that, just like you said. It's from Vayikra 2642. He mentions that there's five times in scripture where the Vav Eliyahu is missing. There's also five times... Um, that Yaakov is spelled with this Vav. This is one of those instances. And it's it's because, you know, Yaakov took the Vav as like a, this, this guarantee, this collateral, that Eliyahu would ensure that when the time comes, he will announce the coming of Mashiach. Wow. Wow. And wow. So you take, you take the Vav, which is Gamacha is... Six. Six. Right? And you multiply it times a five times. Come on. And you get what? Lamed, which is 30. Lamed, 30. And so Lamed, it's 30. It's the last letter in the Torah. It's enlarged. You know, if if you break it down, according to Baha Torm, it's, it's made of a Vav and a, and a Kaf, which is 26, yes. the allusion to divinity. Yes. And according to um, Ginsburg, there's also a little U to the top, which is 36. Mm. Like the whole Gemara that talks about the world is sustained on account of 36 individuals. That's right. All hidden in one letter, the Lamed. Instantly enough, you have Yosef, who was actually appointed as viceroy when he was 30, the Gemachia Lamed. <laughs> and when Yeshua and, began his ministry. Boom, yes, right on the same page. You have Luke three twenty three. It says Yeshua was thirty old, thirty years old when he began to teach. And interestingly, the verse just before that talks about him being the beloved son mm. of the Father. 
<laughs> just like Joseph was the beloved son of Yaakov, who's mentioned in this verse. Wow. And then after that, it goes on saying how he's been Yosef. <laughs> in, in case it couldn't be more clear what the text is trying to tell us. Right. So all the bouncing ball. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> Come on. Two for one special. If you look at, at the Vav and if you look at the Lame, they both have the shape of like the staff, if you will. Yes, sir. And it's interesting because part of the element of redemption all revolved around the staff of, of Moshe, the staff of Aaron. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so incredible. Um, the Mam Mam Loa actually comments on the idea of the staff when he takes when he takes the staff to Pharaoh's court. He says this is actually where we derive. Uh, the the halacha of how we're supposed to bow on the I'm hitting that tab the Shimoni Ezrei. Oh, cool. So here's our here's our halakhic point with this. You know, it says when when a person bows before God, so it's talking about this this um the snake and the 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 staff allusion to how we're supposed to bow. Hmm. God had an important reason for using the symbolism of a rod turning into a snake. When a person bows before God, he must bow deeply so that all his vertebrae bend. When he bows down, he must bow straight with his back straight like a stick. But when he rises, he must do so little by little like a snake rising. As we have seen, this is how one must bow in the Amidah. Mm, and so... There, there's also Shokan brings down this idea of um, when we bow, like it just mentions that we bow to all our vertebrae bread, but we don't want to bow all the way down to like our, our belt line. Right. You know, bow bow um, that low just to where all your vertebrae bend. And interesting enough, there, there's there's sometimes a bit of uh, confusion, but you don't bow every time you say, blessed are you. Unless you're a priest or a Levite. Yes, but interestingly, and in, in like the, the common way to bow within the Shemani Ezra, there's four places uh, that wow. you bow. Come on. <laughs> four places within those 18 blessings. There's a two in the Avot section, you know, about the shield of Abraham mm -hmm. and of the forefathers, and there's two in the Thanksgiving. Yes, sir. So it's interesting because when, like, literally you think about this, you think about how uh, Moshe and Aaron, this whole allusion to bounding the Amidah goes back to the court of Pharaoh when Aaron is casting down the rod and it's turning into a snake and it's going to the staff. So he literally casts down what uh, Zohar refers to as this, this tree of life and the son of God. He cast it down. And it becomes a snake. <laughs> so hinting, hinting at like this whole principle of, of the Sadiq who's cast down from his high place in order to go into a very low place. And what happens when you pick up the staff or pick up the snake, it becomes a staff in, his, in Moshe's hand. Yes, sir. So this, this whole idea, it's, it's about like what we talked about with Baal Shem Tov. We're brought to this low level in order to redeem and lift up other people, in order to redeem and lift up all of creation itself. 
Wow. And so literally these four times we're bowing in the Amidah parallels this whole this whole concept. It parallels the four cups of redemption. It parallels um, these four promises being redeemed out of exile. So when we're doing these four bows, we are literally not just remembering the exodus that was. We are actually living in the redemption. We are actually preparing and paving the way for redemption, for Mashiach's return. Which is, you know, you go a little further and outside those 18 blessings, there's um, the final closing one where you bow and you bow uh, left, right and forwards. That's right. Making a scene. You have this fifth bow, which parallels the fifth, the whole fifth, uh, the fifth uh, cup, the whole cup of Shavuot, of receiving the Torah. And then, like you said, you make the sheen. And also, that would be like eight bows in total after those 18 blessings, which is the Chet, which is like alluding to Mashiach. Oh my goodness. And you said the sheen, and I think that's amazing. I didn't even catch on to that. You make the sheen when you bow. And if you break down the whole idea of every letter is made up of other letters, like we talked about Philamid, the sheen is actually made up of letters, which puts its gematria of 358, which is Mashiach. That's right. So literally, this whole idea of these four bows, you have the redemption, and you have the fifth bow, which parallels the Torah, hinting at that is actually a living Torah, the Mashiach, who's going to end up building a temple, rebuilding that, and lifting us out of our exile. Wow. So when you put those three letters together... Uh, you talk about the hay, the five, and the dalit, the four, and the sheen, the final bow. You have the word sheen, dalit, hay, which is sade, which is feel, which is also what the Beit HaMikdash is called, the field. So we are transporting ourselves literally to the field of Hashem. Wow. That is crazy. And that, that's just so beautiful because... That just makes me think of the month of Elul, the time when the king is in the field. The field. And so where are you supposed to be? It means you actually go out onto a field and walk around and... No, you you get into the Shemoni Ezra. That's right. And you talk to Shemoni Ezra and you get to meet the king in the field, the time when he's closest, so to say. At the time of his favor. Man. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to drop in there about this Vav. Uh, Mashiach, on, in uh, Mark ten forty five, he tells us that he gives his life as a ransom, right? So, his life being the Vav, Zohar Mishpatim 7, calls this Vav Memtet, the Son of God, the branch of the tree of life, the staff that is in Moshe's hand. So, when we're bowing... We're connecting to the fact that the one who gave his life as a ransom for us to bring us into the field, to bring us close to the king, like we're connecting with that. So just wanted to throw that out there. Wow. That's beautiful. Brukashim. <laughs> you know, brings us to our 
just this last the last uh, verse in the half Torah where it says, you do not fear my servant Yaakov. And so here's the second time my servant Yaakov is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, do not fear my servant Yaakov is mentioned. It's again, it's this double comfort, this double reinsurance. We mentioned that um, a lot earlier in the half, half Torahs, the, yes. this double and so, do not fear my servant Yaakov, says Hashem, for I am with you. Even if I will make an end of all the nations amongst whom I cast you, I will not make an end of you. I will chastise you as you deserve, but I will not destroy you totally. Uh, A.K.A. replacement theology does have has no standing whatsoever. I agree, and so does the Mezudat David. Ooh. So... Yeah, there's three witnesses, and you grill like a microwave. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to kind of hammer this, this idea home, this is the, the key words for I am with you, those, these are the key words for I am with you, because the Almighty Shekinah is with B'nai Israel, even in exile. As a result, their survival is assured. Amen. So it tells us that the sufferings of this exile cleanse the cleanse the Jewish people, cleanse us, and spare them from total annihilation. And it says, uh, the Midrash goes on to say there's a particular merit that stands um, that stands us in good stead. Good stead. It says, Hashem says, the nations of the world will harvest their fields from end to end. Therefore, I shall make an end of them. However, the Jewish people keep the mitzvah. Do not reap your field to the end. Leave a corner for the poor. In this merit, I will also never make an end of them. Wow. And so it's interesting. It mentions this whole idea of of um, leaving leaving some for the poor. We do this uh, practically today by not ma- neglecting the mitzvah of sadaka. <laughs> yeah, you know, this this whole idea. It's 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 better. It's better to give uh, a little sadaka every day than to give a whole bunch of sadaka at once. And so, how do we do this practically? If you ever want to know how to do something practically, go straight to the Shulchan Rukh. It'll tell you how how to how to live uh, this Jewish life and how to do so correctly. And it actually mentions in the section of preparation before prayer, Simon uh, two or Simon twelve, uh, paragraph two. It is proper to give charity before praying. As the verse says, I shall behold your face through charity. Mm, mm, so it's a good habit before before getting in your prayers. You know, maybe put a, a coin in the sadaka box um, and developing that habit. And it's just so, it's so interesting because it goes on to say in that same paragraph about binding yourself um, to the commandment of you shall love your fellow as yourself mm. and directing your heart to love every one of the Jewish people as he loves himself. Because if God forbid, there is division between the hearts of the Jewish people below on earth. Then correspondingly, there's also no unity among the souls of the Jewish people above in heaven, but a unity between the physical beings of the Jewish people below causes unity and connection between their souls and above in heaven. And through this, their prayers also become unified and then when their prayers are all combined together in one unified prayer that prayer finds favor with a shin may his name be blessed 
Amém. I, I love the practical applications of our faith. You know, really bringing it down into tangible doings. Yes. It, it, it's amazing. It's like um, what um, Rabbi said in his, um, in his last drosh on, on Shabbat. The whole idea of, you want to live a holy life? Follow halakha. Ken. It's, it's really, really um, that simple. And if really, when you get get down to it all, what really separates Judaism from every other religion is what you do. It's how you walk it out. It's 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 actually abiding in that halakha. That's right. That's really what makes a difference, you know, because you know Musar is excellent, but every every religion has some idea of doing good to it. Right. But we have to attach ourselves to Hashem's wisdom and the wisdom He's imparting on on Chazal to really guide us. But it's just uh, such a beautiful verse at the end, um, and just these these last two pasuks are just these powerful or pesukim are a really powerful source of comfort for exile. And unfortunately, there's a lot of assimilation with the nations and their behaviors and spirituality sort of in its decline. Um, but besides but all this, Yamahu, the one who suffers with us, who gives us hope in this exile, like this precursor to that, he's, he assures us that our nation's restoration is certainty. And this is what we were talking about when he said, uh, when we, we were talking about him being a realistic optimist, if you will. Right. Man. Lukashim. And, uh, you know, this again, Yeshua says the same words. I am with you, you know, to the end of the age. Yes. So, you know, you really look at that, like, again, it's another point that this exile will end and our redemption is sure and certain. So may we attach ourselves to the one who redeems. So that when it's time for the final redemption, that we are ready to go and that we are made worthy to go. And not Amen. in and of ourselves. So, amen. Amen. Well, that was uh, epically violent <laughs> and <laughs> very, very uh, refining. So, Todah Rabah for sharing insights with us and really encouraging us and... Uh, this is just such an incredible haftarah to really get down to, you know, the essence of who we are as Hashem's people. So, Baruch Hashem, seriously to Hashem, like, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, just as far as the to make sure that we understand what our practical takeaways are, um, you know, we're looking at really meeting our struggles head on, taking on our challenges through the mighty hand of Hashem. And um, that is Bo El Paro, coming to that which distances us from Hashem. Take that challenge with Messiah Yeshua and uh, emptying ourselves and man, gradually giving Zadaka, not all at once, but every day as much as we can. Wow. 
and then anything else that you would like to share before we index our time? I uh, think you you really just hit on everything. Uh, I I might just miss the whole idea of if you're struggling with anything, if anything's like this overwhelming desire, know that you've been sent on a mission. You're not you're not a victim. You're not a bad person. You've been sent on a mission by Shim, and he's entrusted you with that to fulfill it. Um, so whatever desire, negative desire that may be, overcome it, and you're literally overcoming the world. You're literally uplifting your brothers and and your sisters and all of creation. So he's entrusted you with that battle. If you're going through that, uh, don't let him down. Fight that victory and win it. Amen. Can you hear that song? Amen. Amen. Well, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, zur kol haolamim, zadik bekol hadorot, ha'el ha'ne'eman, ha'el. Omer veose hamdaber, um kayem, shekol devarav, emet vazedek. Ne eman atahu Adonai Elohenu, ve ne emanim. Devareka ve devar echad, midvareka akor lo yashuv, recham ki el melek, ne eman verakaman atah. Baruch atah Adonai, ha el ha ne eman, bekol. Devarav, Biskut Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Toda Rabbah to everyone for joining us. This is Shomerman and Chasis Baz for Haftarah Parsha Bo, sending you a Shavua Tov and Shalom. Shalom.